You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Okay. Our text today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out to you uh, in your presence, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the dead rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in oblivion? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me, wretched and close to death? From my youth on, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults and destroys me. It surrounds me like a flood. All day long, on all sides, it closes in on me. You have caused both friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. All right. That's the entirety of Psalm 88. This is known as a lament psalm. Many or perhaps even most of the psalms contain lines of lament. Some psalms are entirely laments, like this one. But they often contain a couple lines of lament or a a complaint spoken to God in prayer. But most psalms resolve the tension at the end. Usually the psalm will end by saying something like, 
But you, O Lord, are faithful and true and, and will rescue me and restore me by your great power. You'll show me your salvation and deliver my life from the grave. Praise the Lord. They'll usually end that way. They'll resolve. But a true lament psalm, like the one I just read to you, Psalm 88, it doesn't resolve the tension. It doesn't dry our tears. It doesn't clean up the mess. It just says, I am forsaken. God has abandoned me. Life fucking sucks. Period. And I think this is really powerful, and I want to talk about the role of lament in the Hebrew tradition today and what we can learn from it and apply to our lives or perhaps into our faith. I want to look at both the therapeutic and the theological aspects of lament here, and they're certainly related. But first, let's look at the therapeutic. Lament psalms were meant to be sung or recited in community like I just did. In other words, what gave them their power in the Hebrew tradition was the shared suffering that was expressed in these words and expressed in the communal reciting of these words. Laments move physical and emotional pain from the isolated and inner world of personal thought and personal struggle out into the external world of spoken language and community. Laments give voice to our shared pain and our experience. The underlying message of laments are basically, you are not alone. We are not alone in our sufferings. Others are with us and have been where we are at. It's in those waters of shared suffering and solidarity that something kind of amazing can happen. People can find strength. We can find strength. We can find hope. We can find the strength to cope and to move on even. It's amazing how this works, how shared suffering works this way. A great example of it would be like AA or a 12-step program. We're all familiar with those. What makes those so powerful? What makes those, those programs places where people can find healing and sobriety. Well, it's the shared suffering. It's simply going there and saying, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an addict. And everyone says, welcome, I am too. And it's in those waters of, of solidarity, community, shared suffering, where people get real about their brokenness. It's amazing how in those waters of shared suffering and community, something amazing happens. People find healing and strength, coping strategies, etc. This is the power of lament. Laments are communal in nature. They also speak to this idea that in order for grief to be properly dealt with, in order to grieve in a healthy way, our grief, our pain, our anger, it must be spoken of. It's often only when we say something out loud that it becomes real and we can deal with it, which is kind of the underlying premise of therapy, right? You go to therapy 
in order to say the things that are very hard to say, right? But unless we speak of it, our grief, our pain, our anger, whatever, unless we speak of it, it remains internal, suppressed, repressed. And it will eventually and unfortunately work itself out in our life in unhealthy ways, like in addiction, substance abuse, self-harm, or, or harming others. We must grieve. We must lament. We must speak of it in order to be healthy human beings. And when we speak of our pain and our grief, it's often the case that we rob it of its sting. We rob it of its power over us simply by talking about it, which is to say that we realize when we speak of it that we are not our feelings. Yes, they are our feelings, but we are not our feelings. They're just feelings. Feelings change, feelings come and go, but we are not our feelings. I think these are these kinds of things are revealed to us when we lament. This is what the lament tradition helps us realize, which makes it all the more troubling to me that so many Christians have traditionally downplayed or ignored the lament tradition in the scriptures, as if it's hardly even there or not that important which is fascinating because there's actually an entire book of the Bible dedicated to lamenting. It's called the Book of Lamentations. It's there in the Old Testament. Tradition holds that Jeremiah wrote it. And it's just a collection of poetic laments about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians around the year 586 BCE. So the practice of lament has forever been part of the Hebrew tradition, but it also lies at the heart of the Christian tradition. Remember Jesus's famous words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't make those words up. That's actually a quote, of a verbatim quote from Psalm 22, a line of lament taken directly out of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we find the lament tradition at the very heart of Christianity itself, the, the moment, the crucifixion. Which is to say that there is no understanding of the cross without an understanding of the lament tradition. There is no theology of the cross without a theology of lament. And yet a lot of Christians and churches will not deal with this topic. And for obvious reasons, many Christians are not comfortable with laments because they challenge our certainties and beliefs in an all-powerful God. Laments sound kind of like despair and doubt because they are expressions of despair and doubt. Which raises the question, what, what role does despair and doubt play in our spiritual community and in our faith journey? Do they play a role at all? Well, obviously in this church they play a role, but in many churches they do not. 
because they invoke too much anxiety. People don't, generally speaking, people don't want to acknowledge their despair and doubt because they're afraid of where it might lead. It's deconstructive, we would say today. It's deconstructive. It leads to a place of deconstruction. The lament tradition, I would say, is deconstructive. And I, I think it's helpful to think of deconstruction through the lens of the lament tradition. I think we should see deconstruction as a spiritual practice, not unlike the spiritual practice of lament. In researching for my talk today, I read someone who said, Laments are a theology of despair. I thought that was really interesting. Laments are a theology of despair, which I think is also to say that laments are a theology of deconstruction. They call into question God's presence and power and thereby invite us to change what we believe about God's presence and power. At least this is my reading. I should put it that way. This is my reading of the lament tradition. It doesn't have to be yours. But it's my reading, and especially my reading of Jesus's lament on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a kind of paradoxical moment. You know, we're told Jesus is God. Here we find God despairing of God. God lamenting God's absence, God feeling forsaken of God. What is what quick at this mean? The cross signifies for me the death of the all-powerful deity, the all-powerful supreme being version of God, and the resurrection, or we might say the reconstruction of a God who's not all-powerful at least not the way that we think of power traditionally. God's power is not like the power of this world. God's power is fully revealed in acts, I would say, of true power, like love, compassion, self-sacrifice, humility, fighting for justice and standing in solidarity with those denied justice, the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, the oppressed. The power revealed in the suffering and crucified Christ is a power completely unlike that of Caesar. You know, the way people imagined power back then, the, the power revealed in the suffering and crucified Christ was completely unlike the power of empire and Caesar and the powers of this world, which operate according to brute strength, violence, force, coercion, that the power to dominate, to control, to assert oneself over others. This is not the power revealed in the crucified and suffering, the meek and mild, the, the oppressed one, Jesus of Nazareth, antithetical to his power, in fact. Christ reveals that God's power, rather, is found in the so-called, and I'm putting it in scare quotes, weak power of love, 
compassion, mercy, self-sacrifice, humility, and standing in solidarity with the powerless, the poor, the oppressed, the outcasts, the downtrodden, etc., the afflicted. This is, this is true power revealed in the persona Jesus of Nazareth in the four gospels. This was his understanding of power and the kingdom of God that he came proclaiming. The power of the kingdom of God is a power that subverts and undoes all of our expectations of power and might. Think about it. Think about all the teachings Jesus gave in the parables. In the kingdom of God, we're told the rich are brought low and the poor are lifted up. In the kingdom of God, it's the Samaritans and the sex workers and the tax collectors and the so-called transgressors that are preferred over the, the so-called righteous and holy ones, right? the priests and the Pharisees and right those folks. In the kingdom of God, a tiny little mustard seed, we're told, is the greatest of all the seeds. In the kingdom of God, the widow's might, the widow's penny, is the greatest sum of money in the world. In the kingdom of God, it was the 11th, the 11th hour workers. The 11th hour workers are paid the same as those who worked all day. I could go on. The last are first and the first are last, etc. The, the point is Jesus went out of his way to demonstrate that the power of God and the ways of God are antithetical to our conceptions of power and might and strength. In the wake of God's crucifixion, and I like that word wake, reminds me of the funeral. In the wake of God's crucifixion, we are the body of God now, the risen Christ in the world the body of Christ. We are the we are the power of God in the world now. This is how we should think of God's power. It's antithetical to the way we think of power. God's power is found in our love for each other, in our solidarity with the downtrodden and oppressed. This is how I understand God's power now, and this is where the lament tradition has led me. This is where Jesus's lament from the cross has led me. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It signifies the death of the all-powerful supreme being for me, the resurrection and the reconstruction of a God of love. Not an all-powerful magical being, but a God who is with us in this life, in this world, as we are with each other. leads me to the death of the God of traditional theism and the resurrection of a God of mysticism and a God of love and justice and solidarity. This is how I see deconstruction as a deeply spiritual practice, like the spiritual practice of lament. Both spiritual practices challenge our conceptions of God and God's power. And yet such spiritual practices are not antithetical to faith, but integral, integral to faith. 
they can help us imagine a new way forward, a new understanding of God. They can help us reconstruct something new, something life-giving and hopeful and true. But we've got to be willing to trust the process. <laughs> got to be willing to trust the lament and the deconstruction process. In the same way that grief and loss must be spoken of and faced, confronted, in order for us to grieve in a healthy way, to, to be emotionally healthy, so our doubts and our unknowing about God must be spoken of and faced in order for us to be spiritually healthy. But many are not willing to do this. Because again, it's tough. And there's anxiety there. And many who don't want to do this will even tell us that we shouldn't do it. With regards to deconstruction, they'll say something like, look, you know, it's, uh, it's okay to deconstruct. It's okay to deconstruct your faith right now, but you eventually need to get over it and not let it change you. You eventually need to reconstruct and believe in God like you did before. Don't let deconstruction change you. Have, have you heard that maybe before or perhaps just inferred? But, you know, this is like saying to someone who's just endured the death of a loved one, look, it's okay to grieve right now. It's okay to mourn right now. But you need to get over it. You need to get over this loss and not let it change you. No, grief changes us. Loss changes us. Deconstruction changes us. Lament changes us. And that's okay. We can learn to cope and move on from the initial stages of it all. But we're not the same person as we were before, and that's okay. We need to accept that. Ultimately, I think deconstruction and lament leads us to a healthier place where we are stronger and can face life with courage. The courage to be, as Paul Tillich put it, the courage to simply be to be here now, to be fully human. And so I believe this is ultimately a message of hope, a message of healing and, and liberation and joy, as Psalm 30 says, and I'll end with this. Weeping and sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping and sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen. All right, so there's my talk for today, and we've already done communion. So per usual, I want to open it up for questions, comments. Um, anybody got anything? And if you're online, please, if you would like, unmute and raise your voice that way. Yeah, Marcia. I am curious since I did not go through deconstruction the way I was raised and my beliefs didn't make that a necessity. Um, 
what are your thoughts about someone who goes through the process? You've now said you changed through the process, going back to visit your family that hasn't. Okay, so your question was, can you just repeat that last part of it again? Oh, just, now that you've gone through this process, what was right. it? And you choose to go back to see your family, whether mm. it's a holiday or a wedding or a funeral. How do you handle the thought that you have gone through a process yeah. and you have said you changed? Yeah. And they haven't. That's a great question. Um, okay, thanks. Um, I think it differs for each one of us how we handle going back home after we've changed greatly in that regard and what topics to avoid. Um, you know, I can speak from my personal experience and then I'd love to hear if anybody else wants to add, you know, I still have a relationship with my mom, but we don't talk about religion anymore. Um, it's probably safe. I just feel like there's nothing there to talk about. It's probably better if we don't, which makes our relationship pretty superficial. Yeah, but she's my mom. That's where it is. I'm cool with that. Um, and I, you know, for me, I don't want to like make it an issue between us anymore. Religion was, you know, Christianity was a big part of my, obviously a big part of my childhood and belief. And it was kind of traumatizing and revisiting all that with my mom doesn't serve me or her, I feel like. And she's, I feel fully accepted by her for where I'm at. Like she sees what I post on Facebook. She's attended service here before. She knows where I'm at pretty much. And she still loves me and fully accepts me. Good enough. And I need to like, be like, well, but what do you believe about, you know, Leviticus? <laughs> but yeah, that's what, that's where I'm at. Anybody else want to talk about how they deal with family members that aren't where you're at and, how you manage those relationships post-deconstruction. Yeah, Anna. I think just similar to what you said, um, kind of picking your battles and in love and in wisdom, which is really hard. Um, sometimes the relationships are more superficial or shallow like we're just not going to go to these places because i value what we still can have and there's a love there other people who will not respect boundaries and will just be just incredibly hostile or attacking then it might need to be more of a of a spatial like just distancing of life um, which is also hard but i don't know it's kind of interesting when people are open-minded enough even if they're like steeped in maybe more traditional faith um like me and one other sibling are like you know over to deconstruct it and have done a lot of work around that and like for example I don't think my mom has gone that far into deconstruction but she's very open and I've seen like actually both parents, but especially my mom, like over the years going from a very traditional conservative view to being more open and being um, really thankful, like for what my sister and I will bring up. And she's never even been able to imagine or consider things for herself. Um, and, you know, seeing that change and just uh, like 
freedom in her own faith journey is uh, encouraging. So it's, there's a lot of fruit um, and as hard as it is, but just to kind of like share like the nuggets of gold that you've experienced along the way to people who are open to hearing them. Good stuff. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. I'm curious if, if you hear this message today as a positive message, as a life-giving message, as, as something that leads to a place that's life-giving or liberating, hopeful, healing. I'm curious about your emotional reaction to this topic of lament and seeing deconstruction through the lens of lament and this idea of, you know, this, this change in the way that we understand God's presence and power in the world. Do you, do you see this in a positive light? Do you see it in a negative light? I'm just curious about your reaction to that. Yeah, Leanne. Yeah, I think this is a great message. Well, um, a couple years ago when I first moved to New York, um, I had very extreme anxiety to the point where it wasn't an eating disorder, but like I was so anxious I couldn't eat. And I like I passed out on a subway platform and like just really like things started happening that were caused by the anxiety where I was like just petri like petrified all the time. It was very all-consuming. And I think the liberating part of that was like turning and facing the source of it as opposed to running and being it's like you kind of, it's like, it's, you're putting in this closet and it's like banging on the door and you're like terrified because this like horrible, it feels like this monster is like banging on this door and being like, let me out. And it's like, the more you barricade it away, the scarier that experience becomes. And it was painful and difficult, but the process of like, what if you open the door, <laughs> like, and you're not barricading it um, led to you know, this gradual process of being able to process anxiety, process panic, process this like paralyzing fear. So it feels aligned with what you're saying of like, so much of this culture is like pushed down, quote unquote, the negative, pushed down the fear, the doubt, the disbelief. And it's like, you're building this like barricade and it becomes, it because of it, it becomes an even bigger deal. It's more scary. It's more terrifying. You're um, so I think like it's a great message where facing anxiety, facing fear and pain, facing grief, you're no longer a walking jack in the box. Like something isn't going to pop out at any second. I feel like, yeah, I have a parent that is, that is a human jack in the box where like things will just pop up and it's because of unprocessed grief and unprocessed anger. Um, so I think it's a very, um, yeah, constructive way. And I think it's aligned with like a lot of like therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and yeah, methods today of like processing difficult emotions. Cool. Anybody else? How does this talk emotionally hit you? Seeing heads nodding, yeah, Rodney. Yeah, to answer your question, I think it's ultimately a positive message, um, but it takes a certain level of maturity. Like you were saying, as it relates to therapy, it's good to talk about your feelings and your emotions. So after you've been 
a Christian for a while, you discover books like this in the Bible and you're like, realize, oh, it's okay to cry out to God and say, hey, God, I'm not doing okay right now. <laughs> you know, where are you? What's going on? Uh, but you have to have a certain level of maturity to know that it that it is okay to say that to God and to not stay in that space, so to speak, that you're, when you say that to God, to cry out to him, you're working through whatever it is you're feeling so that you do hopefully arrive back at a place of hope and faith. Um, so ultimately, I think it's a positive message to know you, we have the freedom to express ourselves openly and honestly to God that way. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, somebody else want to react? And one thing I want to caveat here this morning is the ultimate goal behind talking about this is or the ultimate, um, the underlying um, focus is love, right? The idea that to, and to be healthy and whole, to love ourselves enough to face that which is hard, not just about grief and loss, but specifically about our spiritual deconstruction, kind of the grief and loss of the faith of our childhood or upbringing or a particular conception of God. Ultimately, it's it's love, self-love and the love of others that, you know, is underlying this talk for me. But because the goal or the underlying um, impetus is love, for me, I I think, you know, because I, I work uh, not just here at Central, but my context is also as a chaplain working with folks um, like at well, formerly Windsor era uh, gardens now, who are very conservative in their faith. And they are in their 80s and 90s and pushing them. You don't, you never push somebody into deconstruction, right? And, and so, you know, working with folks that have a conception of God that is very conservative, you know, the path of love for me in that circumstance is to understand that sometimes people are doing theology for survival. You know, their beliefs are a matter of survival and, and, you know, to take away, you know, their conception of God's power in their life, it'd be a very unloving act. And, and so I just want to like say that, like, yeah, we talk a lot about deconstruction here and, and I'm just talking today about like lament and all that. That's because this is the con, this is the context where that message can be heard in an air of love and constructive, you know, um, healthy it's healthy here but if i go there and i do i do that too much or I, you know like i'll preach a version of this this afternoon at windsor in the vesper service marshall marshall's usually there um i'll preach a version of this but i will not go exactly where i took you because there would be heard as it would, it would be destructive not deconstructive it would be destructive it would be hurtful you know, my job is a, as a minister, and I think all our jobs is to first, like a doctor, do no harm, right? Help people get healthy, but first and foremost, do no harm. Consider, you know, is what I'm doing helping this person or am I hurting this person? You know, that takes a certain amount of sensitivity and thought too. So I guess all that to say like, yeah, this, I'm asking you, how does this topic emotionally strike you? And, you know, for some, it would just be like terrible it would be hurtful. So I just wanted to say the, the underlying emphasis for all of this is love. What is the path of love? You know, is it loving? 
Is it, is it healthy? Is it, is it good for human well-being? I guess is the question. For he, here in this context, this conversation is. But in other contexts, like with my mom, like as I, Marsha's question, with my mom, this would not be uh, a, a, a helpful conversation. It would not enhance her well-being. Um, and I have to be sensitive to that. We have to be sensitive to these things, um, I think. Does that make sense? Anybody want to respond to that? Yeah. Okay, Marsha. Thanks, Rodney. Yeah. I think you, your message at the end was perfect, which is that respect and do no harm. Different people come from a place where, and especially older people, because I'm now surrounded by them. You know, they're, you know, in their 80s, one foot is in cement. In their 90s, both feet and 10, of course, they could be buried, but, you know, um, it, it is important, and that's why I was curious, my question to you, because it would seem to me, I have a friend and we were on opposite ends over abortion rights to such that I, I found it was too stressful to be with her because she could not draw the line to say, that topic just isn't going to fly with me. You know, let's, there's a lot, more you can talk about than that particular thing. But when you're staunch and passionate and you brought up in a certain way, the rigidity may not be there. And I found it was just best to back away, but I could, that was a friend. We've reunited in the last four months because after a maybe four, four years of not even seeing or talking, there was enough space to accept us for all the wonderful things we used and did together or talked together without that one topic. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Marcia. And um, you can just set it down in the pew, that's fine. Um, but yeah, but you're a good example of how even at a place like, uh, like Windsor, there's actually, you know, we shouldn't, you know, paint with too broad a brush. There's lots of folks there actually, and I should know because I've been there for seven years. There's lots of folks in their 80s and 90s that are very open-minded spiritually and that we have these conversations with. You, you're not the only one there who, who, who uh, thinks this way. So anyway, don't paint anybody with too broad of a brush. <laughs> don't ever do that. Not you, I'm saying in general to all of us. Uh, but yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Marsha. Anybody else want to ask anything or say anything? Unconditional love, yes, grace, grace, amen. Anybody else today? Okay, good stuff. Let us conclude our, our uh, formal time together with this word of benediction. Will you say this with me now? As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility, we dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, friends. Go in peace.